our hearts and minds on this just most amazing truth uh, that God became man without ceasing to be God, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man, that he did all of this, became all of this, endured all of this, accomplished all of this for us sinners and for our salvation. And the way we want to consider Christmas and consider Christ himself is through a very small passage of the New Testament letter, Hebrews. And so I would invite you to turn there either in your own copy of the Bible or in the bulletin. It's printed there for you as well. And we're going to spend this week and next week looking at part of Hebrews 2. And uh, this morning, uh, the part that we're looking at is from verse 5 through verse 13. So let's give our attention to God's Word. That's exactly what we believe this to be, the Word of God. And so we would be uh, wise to give our careful attention to it. Let's listen now to God. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. He says that not because he doesn't know where it comes from, but because he's drawing attention to the fact that it's God's word, regardless of who says it. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask as we come again to the scriptures that you would cause us, enable us to hear the voice of God speaking through his word. Lord, if you Do not use your word uh, operating on us with your word and by your spirit. We would be deaf to it. We would be hard-hearted to it. We would hear the words, but we would not hear you speaking to us. We would get up. We would walk out. We would go on our way unchanged. This is a frightening reality to confess, but it is the reality. And so we ask every one of us, or I ask on our behalf right now, that that would not be the case for anybody who's here, that no one would be able to hear this word that's been read and now hear its exposition and walk away unchanged. 
But Lord, we pray that you would hold up in front of our faces the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, exalted, coming again in glory. That we would see him, that we would consider him carefully, focusing on him, that we would respond to him rightly in faith and in repentance and in love and in worship with all of our lives. And we ask that you would operate this way this morning by your word, by your spirit, in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Uh, As you drive around Athens this uh, Christmas season, you may have noticed, uh, as I have, uh, signs on various Christmas, uh, rather Christmas signs or messages on various church marquees. And you'll see, uh, like I saw coming in this morning, uh, the reminder, uh, don't forget Jesus this Christmas, or perhaps uh, Jesus is the reason for the season, or keep Christ in Christ, something like this, okay? Well, you'll notice that the sermon title this morning, uh, which is Considering Christ This Christmas, you, you could read that and you could think, oh, I bet he got that title from some church marquee, you know, on the way to work one day this week. But this phrase, consider Christ, actually comes from Hebrews. In fact, we find it first in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, which we didn't read this morning. But this is a phrase, this is a reminder, in fact, a really strong urging that comes from this letter that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Hebrews is a letter from a faithful pastor. We don't know who wrote the letter, but it's a letter from a faithful, evidently, faithful pastor who was urging his Christian brothers and sisters to keep their eyes focused on Christ. We want to keep urging you to do the same thing because here's the basic reality of the Christian life. If you do not stay focused on Jesus, you will sink. Or to use the language of Hebrews, you will drift. You'll drift into all kinds of things if you don't keep your eyes focused on Jesus. That's the message of this letter. That's the message that we try to preach every single week here. It's the message we want to put before you again uh, this week and next during this Christmas season because it is the way to live the Christian life, to make sure that you're paying attention to Jesus, considering him, focusing on him, trusting in him. But here's the problem, or one of them. It's hard to consider Jesus. It's hard to focus on Jesus very successfully if we don't know very much about him. Maybe this is hard for you. Maybe you find it hard to consider Jesus for any length of time. Now, some of you may have spent hours, this, and this, this is not a rebuke, by the way. Some of you may have spent, or I guess it could be, but I, I didn't intend it that way when I some of you could have spent hours this week considering college football, uh, the upcoming bowl schedule, statistics, why you wish the dogs weren't playing Nebraska again. Some of you could have spent hours considering your fantasy football roster. Some of you may well have spent hours considering various magazines or websites thinking about what you want for Christmas. Some of you may have spent a great deal of time this week and focused attention on some need that's presenting itself to your family or to you individually. But whatever the details, the reality is we all consider things all the time. But what about Jesus? 
Do you spend much time considering Him, focusing on Jesus Himself? If that's hard for you, maybe, maybe it's because you just don't know that much about Him. Your knowledge of Him is somewhat general, sort of vague, the kind of knowledge that makes it hard to really focus on. And so it's difficult for you to spend any amount of time really considering Him and focusing on Him. If this is the case for you, this today is a perfect opportunity for you to reckon with that, to come to terms with it, to admit it, to repent of it, to begin to consider Jesus again, to come back, to focus upon Him. Well, as we look at this passage of Scripture together, I'd like us to see, and this is what's so wonderful about this passage for Christmas, is it is relentlessly focused on Jesus Himself. And this part of the passage gives us today at least three things that you and I need to consider about who Jesus is. Three reasons why the Lord Jesus is worthy uh, of our attention and our love. Here's the first. Here's the first thing it shows us about Jesus Christ. Verses 5 through 9, it shows us this, that having suffered, Jesus is an exalted and glorious king. I'm sure some of you uh, saw The Hobbit this weekend. We still have not seen it, but I can assure you it's been a regular topic of conversation in our home. But it opened on Friday, and I did read uh, a very thoughtful blog post this past week uh, entitled The Allure of Middle-Earth. It's a brief post that is exploring why it is that Tolkien's stories are so captivating, so interesting Uh, to all kinds of people. And here's how the author, uh, Tony Reinke, here's how he concludes his post. As much as we modern king-rejecting independents may reject the thought, we really do know we were made to be ruled, made to be governed by a perfectly righteous king, a king worthy of all our obedience and service who will finally usher in perfect peace and unleash rivers of joyful abundance so great that piles of gold coins will fade to metaphor. This is the allure of Middle-earth. We are drawn to Middle-earth by this swelling, ungratified longing for the day when the true king will return to evict the vile dragon and reclaim the land he has in reality always possessed. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I think he's absolutely right. These stories appeal to us because you and I were made by a king and made to be ruled by a king. Uh, At the risk of uh, making yet another movie reference, uh, I remember uh, watching for the first time The Avengers and there's this great scene. It's terrible. You got Loki, right? Loki's a terrible ruler, a terrible lord figure, but he says something that's exactly right. He says to this assembled mass of people that he's dominating with his awful authority, you were made to be ruled. And every Christian should say, that's absolutely right, but not by a king like that by a true king, by Jesus himself. And what the author in Hebrews 2 is showing us here is that Jesus is, in fact, this great king, this true king. And the, the way he does this is by pointing us back to Psalm 8, which is a song about dominion, about kingly authority. It's a psalm, if you 
uh, don't remember it, you can look at it later, but it's a psalm that begins and ends with praising God, David, praising God for how majestic he is, how, how awesome his creation is. And then in the middle of the psalm, David is contemplating his own place in this great world under this great God, and he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? In light of your greatness, in light of the splendor of what you've made, what is man or the son of man that you would even consider him, that you would give him a second thought, but you've done more than that. You've actually placed the whole creation under his feet. And here the psalmist David begins to reflect back on Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have, what, you remember? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. David, in light of God's majesty and the glory of his world that he's made, David is blown away by the fact that God has placed all that he has made under the dominion of man, of man, male and female, Adam and Eve. He's, he's blown away by this. You see, Adam was created to be God's gardener, to extend this garden where God dwells with his people to the ends of the earth. That's what David's thinking about as he writes this psalm. But of course, David, uh, rather Adam, failed. And when he did, his dominion over the earth was forfeited. See, man, we, man was created in glory and honor and dominion, but has fallen from that estate. That is why there's so much frustration in this world. That's why there's so much frustration in our lives. But here in Hebrews 2, the author is directing our attention to Jesus as the one in whom that dominion is restored. He's presenting Jesus as the king, as the last Adam, the true man who comes and exercises dominion and kingly authority over the world that God has made. And yet, though he comes to exercise dominion, though he comes as a king, it's in such a surprising way. He goes up by coming down. He exercises dominion by giving up power. Back in chapter 1, the author goes to great lengths to tell us that Jesus is higher than the angels, better than the angels, greater than the angels. God says things to Jesus that he never said to any angels. And yet here, what does he say? That Jesus is made for a little while lower than the angels. How could this be? How is this possible? How can the one who is infinitely and eternally and unchangeably greater than the angels also lower than the angels? Well, of course, the answer is Christmas. The answer is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus, the way up was the way down. Before he sat on his throne as the true and right king, he had to hang on his cross. In order to receive the glory and honor and dominion of God that he deserved rightfully, he first had to walk the path of humiliation. This pattern, death and resurrection, humiliation and exaltation, is everywhere in the Bible. And you see it here in verses 7 and 8 as he quotes from the psalm. He says of Jesus, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. He's talking about the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Here's his whole earthly life in one half sentence. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Everything from his conception to his resurrection, you 
Lord, made your son, Jesus, the true Adam, the true king. You made him lower than the angels. You subjected him to humiliation. And yet now, he says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Jesus' humiliation, the Christ of Christmas, whom we consider his humiliation is over forever. He has been humiliated for sinners, but he is now exalted. God has given him glory and honor as his crown, and he reigns now over you, over me, over the, over the entire cosmos. And he goes on and says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Yes, Jesus reigns now, but the psalm is also anticipating the day that is yet to come, when everything will finally and completely be under the feet of Christ, that is, under his authority, under his reign. It's the day that Philippians 2 anticipates, when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming when everything will have been placed under his feet. That will be the day of Jesus' final triumph, and every Christian will share in that triumph on that day. You see, it's important for you to know that this letter was written to Christians for whom becoming Christians had been extremely hard. They were being humiliated as Christians. They were being persecuted as Christians. They were suffering because of Christ. They'd been disowned by their families. They'd lost their livelihood. They'd lost their homes, their money. Some of them had been put in jail. So what do you think they were struggling with? Was this worth it? Am I going to continue to follow this Jesus for whom I am immediately suffering so painfully? They're tempted to turn back. They're tempted to compromise because it was so costly to be identified with Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you know what that's like to some degree, don't you? The particulars don't have to be the same, probably haven't been. But if, you're, if you've come to follow Jesus, it has cost you something. It has cost you. Following Jesus is always costly. So there's this temptation to turn away, to, to compromise, to give in to your doubts and fears, to hold back. So do you understand why the, the author of this letter is speaking to them about Jesus as he is? He's connecting their experience, their humiliation, to Jesus' experience, his humiliation. He's urging them and us to look to Jesus, to consider him. Here's his point. He's saying, oh, my dear friends, if this is how God has dealt with his only begotten son, then this is also how he'll deal with his sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters in Christ. If this has been his pattern with Jesus, humiliation before exaltation, won't it be the same for you if you belong to Jesus? You see, Jesus is far greater than the angels, but he was made lower than the angels, and it happened to him for your sake. So don't be surprised, he says, don't be surprised when suffering comes through, their, through your door. It doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. Don't be shocked this Christmas when someone in your family gives you a hard time because you actually believe what the Bible says. What's happening there is the same thing that your Savior experienced for you. And just as God exalted His Son after His suffering, He'll exalt you too if you continue in Christ and don't turn away from Him. So, 
He's saying, first of all, fix your eyes on Jesus, who having suffered is now an exalted and glorious king. Remember that that pattern is the pattern that God will trace in your own life too. So important if you're not to lose your bearings. The second thing he shows us about Jesus is this. First, having suffered, he is now a king, exalted and glorious. Secondly, having conquered, he is now the pioneer of our salvation. You see that in verse 10. He says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, speaking of God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This word founder or captain or pioneer is a word that uh, is used only in the New Testament two or three times. It's here in Hebrews 2.10, again in Hebrews 12, verse 2, and again in Acts 5, 31. But the, the word, uh, and I'll go ahead and tell you what it is, the word which is archegos, because I'm going to read a quote to you in a minute that has that word, so I might as well go ahead and get it out there. This word, it describes a trailblazer. It describes a pioneer. It describes someone who does something alone by himself because there's no one else who's qualified. But there's something else. By him doing it, his achievements make it possible for others to experience what he's achieved, for others to go where he has gone before. This is what the word means that's used here of Jesus, the founder, the captain, the pioneer, the trailblazer of our salvation. Think about pioneers like Lewis and Clark who blaze a trail out west so that others can follow and benefit in their success and their victory. Like Lewis and Clark, Jesus has blazed a trail through the wilderness, a very different wilderness, a wilderness of sin and guilt and shame and judgment and condemnation and death, and he's hacked through this wilderness And he's opened the way through his own flesh for us into the presence of God by his death on the cross. Or another analogy, a few years ago, Sinclair Ferguson wrote an article uh, for Table Talk magazine called Jesus, Our Navy Seal. And it's an illustration that does a good job of getting us into what Hebrews 2 is saying here about Jesus having conquered, become our pioneer, the founder of our salvation. Here's how he puts it. Think, if you will, of a lone reconnaissance officer who has moved ahead of his platoon, which is in great danger. He's looking for a way of escape. He cuts his way through a jungle, only to discover himself face to face with a gaping ravine. There seems no way forward, but unless he finds one, all is lost. He throws a lasso-like rope to the other side of the ravine and manages to catch it on a tree on the far side. He then risks all by clambering across to the other side, hand over hand, inch by nerve-wracking inch. He secures the rope and manages to create a rope bridge. Eventually, he leads his whole platoon over the ravine onto the safety of the other side. This is a better picture of Christ as our archegos. He is the divine reconnaissance officer who has crossed the deep and dangerous ravine between fallen man and holy God. This is what Jesus has done. This is why he came and shared our our human nature. This is the reason for Christmas. 
Not that he would simply be a baby in a manger, but a warrior, pioneering, captaining, trailblazing our salvation for us into the very presence of God. The eternal God was born. The God who thunders in the heavens cried in a manger. The virgin conceives and gives birth to a baby greater than she is. The infinite becomes subject to time. The unchangeable becomes changeable. The divine becomes human. God becomes man without ceasing to be God. Why? So that he can go into the enemy-occupied territory of sin and death and shame and guilt and a world, a whole world, and lives like yours and mine under the wrath of God and by his death and resurrection break the neck of sin and death and satisfy the holy judgment of God. And the point of this word is that because he has done that, he has become the founder, the pioneer of our salvation, and has led us who believe in him right into the very presence of God, leaving nothing to our power, but bringing us with him, as Luther said, in his skin and on his back, into the presence of his Father. This is why he came and obeyed and bled and died and was raised from the dead, not merely to identify with us, but to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves, blaze a trail into the presence of God where you and I could never have gone. Jesus, having conquered, is also the pioneer of our salvation. And then thirdly, in verses 11 through 13, the author shows us a final thing about Jesus, which is this. Having saved us, he is now our brother. Having suffered, he is now an exalted and glorious king. Having conquered, he's the pioneer of our salvation. And having saved us, he is our brother. This is the point of the last three verses of this passage, and you'll see suddenly he just sweeps back into the Old Testament and brings forward all these passages to illustrate his point, to prove the point that he's making. But this is the point, Jesus being the brother of his people of the last three verses of this. It's one of the most amazing things you could ever hear, really amazing. Jesus didn't come just to be the king and head of a new creation. He didn't just come to restore what Adam lost. He didn't just come to deliver us from sin and death through the cross. Those things are gloriously true. But this passage shows us that there's even more to the gospel than this. And that more is that Jesus has come to be our brother and to make us his brothers and to make us God's sons. This is why the second half of this passage, these verses 11, 12, and 13, they're just jam-packed with family language. Look, verse 10, salvation is described as God bringing many sons to glory. Verse 11, the one who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's Christians, all have one origin. Literally, all are of one, or as the NIV puts it, all are of the same family, so that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, what? Brothers, not ashamed. The Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, could stand in the midst of his people and say with pride, like a like an older brother would say of his younger brother, if he's a good older brother, or like a parent would say of their children, oh, I want you to meet my children. I want you to meet my little brother. Jesus, standing in the presence of God, says, oh, these are my brothers. Not ashamed. Verse 12, Jesus is presented 
This is a powerful picture for us if we're going to understand worship. Jesus is presented as the one who stands in our midst, in the congregation, singing praises to God. Do you realize that's what Jesus is doing right now, this morning? Like earlier when we were singing? Jesus is the one who stands in the midst of the church. And literally, the word that's used there is he sings hymns in the church. He sings hymns in the congregation. Jesus is leading us in worship. What is he doing? The language of Psalm 22 is taken here, and it's put in Jesus' mouth. Jesus is saying to his Father, Oh, Father, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praises. Jesus identifies us as his brothers. He stands in our midst. He leads us in worship. This is one of the reasons that Jesus took on flesh, not just to save us, but to bring us into his Father's presence so we could praise him. So when we sing together, you're singing with Jesus. Isn't that awesome? When we sing praise to God, you're you're joining your voice to the voice of Jesus who leads us in praise. And then in verse 13, Jesus refers to us, his church, his people, those who belong to him. How? Again, he says, oh Lord, my father, these are the children you've given me. They are my inheritance. Before the world began, you gave a people to me that I would redeem them, and I have redeemed them, and they're mine. They're my children. They've been given to me by you, and here they are with me. Just family language is everywhere here. You see, the gospel tells us that in Jesus Christ, God is growing his family. God has only one begotten son, but he has millions of adopted sons and daughters. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's the elder brother of everyone who trusts in him, which means not only that he's our brother, but that his father is our father. Now, some of you have an older brother. Um, I'm sure it was a mixed experience. Uh, Some of you are like me. Some of you had lots of older brothers. Some of you, like me, don't have an older brother. But what does it mean for Jesus to be our older brother? It means that you're God's son, too. That's the main thing it means. It means entrance into his family. It means access to the Father, not just as Jesus' Father, but as yours. It means that you will live in the abundance and security of his house forever and forever and forever and forever. And in fact, Jesus has already secured that position for you. He already loves you and treats you as his brother if you're a believer in Christ. That's Jesus' perspective, his heart toward you now. You are his brother. He's not ashamed of you. By the way, this is not an... If you're a woman, you're still his brother. You're still the son of God. Here's why. Because it's about status. It's about position in the house in the ancient world. You're an heir with Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8, 17. A fellow heir with Jesus of what? Of the riches of God's kingdom. All of it is yours in Jesus Christ. And he'll never be ashamed to stand alongside you and call you his brother. And the Father already loves you and treats you as his beloved son, a fellow heir with Christ. Having suffered, Jesus is now the exalted and glorious king. He wants you to consider that. Having conquered, he's the pioneer, the trailblazer of our salvation. He wants you to consider that. 
having saved us, having achieved salvation for us. He is our brother, and we are his brothers, the sons of his father, who is our father as well. I want you to consider that as well. See, as we approach Christmas, it's one thing to throw out a platitude. Jesus is the reason for the season. Remember Christ in Christmas. Consider Christ at Christmas. These are things that can just roll off our tongue and never really get into our minds or our hearts. But it doesn't have to be that way. This is a wonderful opportunity to consider Christ. His glory, His exaltation, His power, His humility, His meekness, His humiliation, His exaltation, His victory, His intimate fellowship with His people. Some of you have never considered Jesus. Not really. But the offer of the gospel is extended to you today, right now. As he stands in the midst, he is declaring the name of God. He's pointing to his own work. He's pointing to the gospel which he himself preaches. So if you've never considered Jesus, never really focused on him, never really thought carefully about who he is and what he's done, right now, the offer of the gospel comes to you as well. Come to him, the gospel says, and all of this will be yours. In fact, he himself will be yours. And you will be his. And his father will be your father. And for many of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ who are already in Jesus, who already have entered into all of these things, can we, can we resolve together today to consider Jesus together? To consider Him? Let's look back with gratitude to the cross where Jesus tasted death for us and broke the neck of this present evil age to set us free? Can we do that together? Can we look, can we remind each other with confidence that though we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him, by the way, isn't that true? Even though Jesus reigns from one end of the cosmos to the other, isn't it true that our experience can be described by this verse We don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Don't you see the disordered junk in your own life? Don't you see the disordered stuff in the world around you? But can we remind each other with confidence that though we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, we do see by faith that Christ has been crowned with glory and honor and that he does stand in our midst as our king and as our brother? Can we remind each other of this with confidence? And can we look forward together in hope to the day of his second advent? You know, advent has to do not only with looking backwards to the first appearing of Christ, but forward to his second appearing. Can we look forward in hope together when he will come to gather us into his father's house forever? Can we consider Jesus together? That is why we are together today. It's why we're together anytime we're together, that we would consider Jesus. Will you consider him? Let's pray. Lord, you have, you have placed your son, the Lord Jesus, in front of our faces this morning. And beginning right at this very moment, and every moment forward, moving throughout the end of, of our lives, 
we will have to do something with what we've heard and seen. And so, Lord, I, I pray that <clears throat> these great realities, which are so thrilling and wonderful, or, well, they're either boring and unimportant. It depends on the heart. It depends on the condition of those who are here in this room. Lord, I, I pray that you would take your word and drive it down deeply into our hearts, that we would hear these things and rejoice at them, that we would love this Savior, that we would delight in Him, that we would be confident in Him, that we would worship and obey and love and serve Him, that we would broadcast this news everywhere. We thank You, our Father, that You have sought out people to be Your own, that You have come down so far, down, 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 in order to have fellowship with us and to raise us up to be with you. We thank you. We plead with you for your help. And we look forward with eager anticipation to that day when uh, faith will turn into sight. Now, Lord, feed us as we come to the table to feast on Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.